The Bioceuticals clinical range has been developed exclusively for clinicians. This product range offers complex formulas, high doses, and specific ingredients for specialised cases. Bioceuticals clinical infuses quality, credibility, innovation, and professionalism into an exclusive product range that meets the needs and demands of private clinicians. Visit bioceuticals.com.au to learn more. FX Medicine acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia where we live and work and the connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to the Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Hi, and welcome to FX Medicine, where we bring you the latest in evidence-based integrative, functional, and complementary medicine. I'm Dr. Adrian Lepresti, and joining us on the line today is Jerome Saris, Professor of Integrative Mental Health at Nickham Health Research Institute, as well as the co-director of the not-for-profit Psyche Institute, which focuses on botanical psychedelic medicine research. His primary area of research is the therapeutic potential of psychotropic plant medicines for mental health, and particularly mood and anxiety disorders, which is what we're going to be discussing today. So welcome to FX Medicine, Jerome. Thanks for being with us today. Great to be with you. Now, I know that uh, you've done lots of research on herbs and, and nutrients. So how did you get into psychedelics? Well, it's a good question. I guess, look, I've always been passionate about plant-based medicine. And I would say probably preferentially anything involving psychoactive plants. Back when I was a teenager, very interested and not obviously saying that just from an experiential perspective, um, mm-hmm. but, but even just from a research perspective back then, gosh, three decades ago, I was very much enjoying studying, learning about them. And then throughout my career, uh, progressed uh, an interest uh, in kava, uh, in medicinal cannabis, mm-hmm. And then, uh, gosh, probably in a more formalised way over the last seven years uh, in psychedelic medicines. Wow. So what are psychedelics? Well, psychedelics, broadly speaking, are agents which will impart a hallucinogenic effect. Um, Now, when we say hallucinations, or when we talk about, I should say, psychedelics, it's not just confined to having a hallucinogenic effect. These are substances which work primarily on the five uh, HT2A receptor. Uh, they have a range of monoamine uh, effects, but in principle, they're they're very strongly serotonergic, and they can elicit, aside from hallucinations, uh, a range of mind-altering effects. People may have distortions about time uh, regarding their present reality, but this can be actually harnessed in a therapeutic way that people can gain quite profound insights about themselves, about mental health issues, uh, the experiences which they have if used within a therapeutic model uh, can actually be quite beneficial uh, to their health and especially their their mental health. Okay. And what are some examples of the psychedelics that you're talking about? Well, I'm sure listeners would have heard of LSD, obviously very much popularised in the 1960s uh, before Prohibition. Uh, there's also magic mushrooms, which can contain psilocybin, 
as well as other plant-based compounds such as uh, mescaline, which is derived from the peyote cactus, uh, and also something which we are quite interested at Psyche Institute uh, in studying and further furthering research, which is ayahuasca, which is a primarily a two-plant combination uh, of consisting of a, a DMT-containing plant, in many cases mm-hmm. psychotria, uh, as well as a plant or a vine, I should say, which contains homala alkaloids, which are a mono, monoamine oxidase inhibitor. Uh, these are uh, known as homala alkaloids, and they actually prolong the effect and sustain the effect of DMT, which is a, mm-hmm. uh, a serotonin-based psychedelic. Okay. And so do they have similar effects or they, you know, in terms of their, their hallucinogenic effects and their acute effects, mm-hmm. uh, are they different when you, when you take them? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, what we do know is that, yes, they are all considered to be classical psychedelics, that is, psychedelics which do operate via the serotonin pathway. So they're 5-HT2A agonists. Um, But look, they do have differential effects as well. And I think something which is going to be really interesting as research evolves is to tease out which of these particular agents may be preferentially more beneficial to certain individuals um, Mm -hmm. and also certain psychiatric disorders. And our sense is based off you know, an early read of the data. I mean, there's not a lot out there in terms of being able to make comparisons. Um, but certainly what we can see is, for example, your psilocybin uh, having, you know, based on the data and also you know, anecdotal reports, it being of benefit for depression, for example. Uh, you know, when it comes to an agent such as LSD, it's longer acting. Um, so potentially through the therapeutic process, uh, it's been reported clinically that um, people may be able to, I guess you'd say, sort of have a deeper dive into what's going on with their mental health. And potentially it may have a, a more preference role for treatment of trauma uh, and okay. addiction and, and, you know, for example, alcohol or, or substance uh, use uh, disorders. So we're still diving into it. Ayahuasca is is quite interesting as well because – the data which we have uh, through uh, Associate Professor Daniel Perkins at Psyche Institute, who did a collaborative project which was originally based out of Melbourne University, showed really compelling results that people who use ayahuasca uh, may actually have reduced depression, anxiety, beneficial effects on trauma, and also reporting decreased use in alcohol uh, as well as substances. So that may be the case also we may find across those broad range of conditions with LSD and psilocybin, uh, but the research really has to catch that up. So are you talking about um, people who use them, they uh, are preventative t- towards developing those conditions or once they've had those conditions, um, it treats the, the symptoms? That's a great question. Uh, and what we can say is certain substances, for example, ayahuasca, are used traditionally in some uh, Christian churches, incidentally, in South America, uh, they actually use this as part of their sacrament, as part of their uh, religious conduct. And some people will use it hundreds and thousands of times. So they're using it in a sustained manner. And the data does show, yes, in that context, 
it can be certainly preventative uh, for mental illness. Of course, you've got other confounding factors you have to control for, such as the you know um, community support uh, and the effect, um, and we should say the uh, protective effect uh, of uh, religions and spirituality. Um, but that being said, there's also data using it acutely as a treatment for depression, and that's while they're small samples, that is also encouraging, showing a, a, an antidepressant effect, uh, which can be used as a treatment. Now, other agents we don't really have, uh, I don't think, to my knowledge anyway, data supporting a preventative use. Mm-hmm. Um, what we can say is that uh, based on our GAP data, which was a study conducted at the University of Melbourne via Associate Professor Daniel Perkins, mm-hmm. uh, is that this particular data showed that people who did use ayahuasca uh, consistently did report, and it was a dose-dependent effect, even outside of a, a religious context, um, it did actually have a protective effect uh, towards uh, less instance of depression, anxiety, substance alcohol use and trauma. So there, there is a potential role. Another thing which is interesting is that I think there's there's certainly been reported quite widely uh, a spike in people's interest using these agents in microdoses. Mm-hmm. So there's the potential to use these sort of as a regular occurrence in lower amounts. Now, of course, we're not advocating for people to do that, and we really do need to catch up the data, and there needs to, of course, be, you know, the the regulatory systems in place as well as obviously the need for uh, psychological and medical support if needed. So we're certainly not advising people to go off and do it willy-nilly, but um, there is a bit of preliminary evidence that it may have effects on people's mental health uh, using the microdosing and perhaps in future when or if data supports this, it could be used in some form of a preventative role. So when you mean microdosing, so obviously they're using tiny amounts and they're not getting necessarily that hallucinogenic effect? That's correct, yeah. So about sort of one-tenth of the dose. Uh, Okay. Usually typically people would use LSD or psilocybin. Um, Now, once again, cautioning everybody, to my mind that is fairly dangerous unless you know exactly what you're getting aside from, of course, all the legal uh, elements as well, which, which people need to consider. Um, there are safety issues, and, and, and of course, we need to be uh, medically quite vigilant uh, to make sure that, yeah, people's uh, safety is paramount. And also read that in one of those papers when they talked about microdosing, they also stacking it with substances like chocolate and niacin. Is, is that how sometimes it was used? Oh, there's all sorts of... Uh, activities, which I guess you'd say, which are advanced by psychonauts. So I don't know if the listeners have heard of psychonauts, but these are people who delve into their consciousness rather than going out externally into space. In a sense, they're going, they're going internally into space through their experience with psychedelics. And there's all sorts of combinations used. Uh, and that's mm-hmm. usually to prime the serotonin uh, system. So when it's used, um, it's more in its more traditional form, I suppose. Um, what is it? Is it one dose that's given or do you give multiple doses? How's it kind of being looked at? It, it really does depend on the agent. Um, I mean, if you take ayahuasca, for example, we're looking at multiple doses. And the same can be said also of psilocybin, though 
<clears throat> ayahuasca is traditionally used, uh, let's just say if people are taking it in a traditional setting, they might go to Peru for an ayahuasca experience with a shaman, that these retreats they'll do two, three, four, you know, sessions over the space of 10 days. Um, so it's more of an intensive experience. Okay. But that being said, in the context of a modern clinical use, we can actually have a, a system set up whereby, yes, they get their two or three doses mm-hmm. of the psychedelic, but you've got preparatory psychotherapy. You've also obviously got the doses which are medically supervised and facilitated by a clinical psychologist, which occur, and then you've got integration sessions, which occur afterwards. So this is part of, for example, a, an eight to 12-week program. Um, and it's important to realise that these agents certainly where we come from in our research at Psycho Institute, is to make sure that they're scaffolded with proper psychological care uh, and medical supervision as well because it's very important to make sure that the psychology, that the psychotherapy is a mainstay of, uh, of what's being provided. So it's not just the psychedelic medicine, it's also the psychological scaffolding, which is critical. Okay. Okay. So it's not just you give this, uh, you know, you give it to somebody, you administer it once, and say goodbye, and they come back, you know, hopefully feeling better. Or it's it's used often in conjunction with psychotherapy. Uh, yes, absolutely. And that being said, we we have been involved with research uh, with some colleagues over in Brazil with ayahuasca. Once again, just to remind the listeners, that's the DMT. Uh, sort of focused uh, medicine. And what's interesting is that even using it acutely, one dose without psychotherapy in an austere hospital setting still appears for people with uh, major depressive disorder to have an antidepressant effect. So it's good that we know that, that yes, the substance by itself can have an antidepressant effect and therapeutic effects. However, Really, from an ethical position, you want to make sure that the person still does have proper pre-care and after-care. We also want to acknowledge the importance of the psychological therapy around it. And and quite frankly, the data also supports the fact that um, for some people who do not have the integration help, the psychological care, um, it's a very small percentage, but it still can have harmful effects. So ethically, it's important that they are supported within that model. Okay. All right. All right. Yeah. So I wasn't quite sure how it was kind of administered. So you could potentially, it's really the going, you're looking at um, using it as a, a, an adjunct or combination to a psychedelic, I suppose, assisted psychotherapy that then treats the depression or, or anxiety. And you mentioned even substance abuse it can be used for. And yes, look, it makes sense if we look, for example, at depression through a pharmacological lens. You know, we know we want to target you know, certain serotonin receptors and, you know, we get an antidepressant effect and, you know, so on. Um, However, uh, what we do know is with conditions, for example, such as trauma, you know, be it childhood-based trauma, PTSD, also substance and alcohol use, is that these are conditions which one has to, uh, I think, really delve into what what are the triggers? You know, mm-hmm. where does the tumescence of these particular disorders spring from? And that 
ultimately does take a therapeutic journey. It's a process. It's not just a case of giving a substance and you're cured. So we do yeah. recognise strongly that that is incredibly critical in treating those disorders. And uh, and when you think about where it kind of fits in, are you seeing it as potentially a treatment for anybody with, say, depression or is it more with people who have experienced trauma or treatment-resistant depression? Where do you kind of see it fitting in? Well, I think all of the above. Um, but, look, what we should know is that just like everything in life, there's not a case of one treatment will be perfect for everybody and psychedelics for certain people will not be a good fit. Um, you know, one thing we were looking at is is developing data which we can get a, a firmer sense of, you know, f- for, for, for which people actually will suit uh, a psychotherapy-assisted psychedelic treatment and, you know, which people it may not be a good fit. So I think we have to recognise that. Um, I mean, there are ways which we can of course, tailor treatment to people. Um, the thing which is also important is, is the uh, setting, so making mm-hmm. sure people are in a therapeutic space, very comfortable, nice music, eye shades, uh, nice lighting, you know, not being distracted by noise. So there are certain things which we can do to support people as well as having a good therapeutic relationship with the people who are treating them. Um, but it's not a case of one size fits all. And I think we have to be, yeah. you know, fairly uh, understanding of that. If we look at the evidence and the research that's been done so far, where's what's the evidence so far? Are you doing any particular studies at the moment? What's going on there from that field? Yeah, look, we are involved in a few studies. Um, one particular one I can highlight, we were fortunate enough to uh, get an MRFF, so an NHMRC-based uh, grant, uh, to study ayahuasca, um, uh, be that specifically a DMT Hamala alkaloid combination in people with major depressive disorder and also alcohol use, use disorder. And we may also do some work uh, on trauma, and that's a quadruple-blinded RCT. And we're looking at that starting up uh, later on in the year. How do you do blinding when you've got the hallucinogenic effects? How does that work? Well, yeah, it's a good question. In this case, what we're doing is we're prescribing, uh, well, as our placebo, of course, will be randomised, an antihistamine and also zinc. So it's going to be a combination. uh, The antihistamine will elicit a sedating uh, effect, which will, you know, potentially have some cognitive uh, altering experiences uh, apparent, uh, as well as the zinc, which can give a, a slightly uh, emetic, uh, nauseating effect. And the reason mm-hmm. is because a certain percentage of people with ayahuasca will have a little bit of nausea, and in some cases they may actually have a purging experience. Um, and interestingly, that purging experience for some people is incredibly cathartic and therapeutic. Um, and then afterwards mm-hmm. it's perceived as a real release both psychologically uh, and also physiologically, uh, of something which is really impeding them uh, with their, their mental health. So how hard was this to get through ethics and get approval and funding and all that? Well, look, we've, we, we've been quite uh, blessed. There was a government call put, put out for $15 million and uh, myself and colleagues across Australia had uh, seven of these projects funded. Um, so that's quite exciting in Australia uh, that we're doing that. And we've also had uh, other colleagues such as Dr. Mark Ross uh, have ethics approval and has conducted 
fantastic uh, psilocybin research at St. Vincent's. Also have Professor Susan Russell uh, with psilocybin and depression over at Swinburne. They've got ethics clearance and there's also some work going on at Monash. So um, certainly we, we don't expect any issues regarding ongoing ethics clearance. And are they um, studies that are ongoing or they uh, actually have completed the studies and published the trials? Still ongoing, still ongoing. As okay. you can imagine, it really is quite resource intensive to run these studies and in many cases quite costly. Um, and also, look, let's be frank, COVID has not really assisted no. in terms of being a researcher in Australia. But look, things are heating back up. And there's some fantastic projects uh, which are cooking away during 2022. Wow, wow. Okay. All right. So you've got those, all these. So the research is um, looking specifically at the psilocybin and, and how do I say it again? The AU, Ayahuasca. Ayahuasca, yeah. Ayahuasca. Okay. They're the, the two um, psychedelics that are being more researched at the moment. Is that correct? Or are there other psychedelics that um, are getting more, more and more attention? Yeah, I mean, there's there's related compounds, for example, ketamine, where there's been a fair bit of work done. In Australia, uh, MDMA, so there's a couple of MDMA studies which were funded, and while they're not classical psychedelics, uh, they're still broadly within the field. Uh, so they've been funded as part of the government grant as well, and they'll be underway later this year. Okay. And so when these are administered, they do they have like rapid antidepressant anxiolytic effects? Is, is that potentially part of their benefit because they work and work really quickly? They certainly can. And I think that was, uh, well, I don't want to use the word popularised, but advanced with really rigorous science. Uh, one of the leaders, Professor Colleen Liu up at uh, UNSW, has done some great work with ketamine. Uh, and, and that has shown to have uh, quite a marked alacrity of effect in reducing depression. Uh, but we've seen sort of similar effects with psilocybin. Uh, and also with ayahuasca. So all these agents, yes, can, can actually elicit quite a strong antidepressant effect. And I think the the real proof in the pudding and where we really have to just, you know, delve deeper in terms of the science and generate more data, and that is in respect to the longer-term effects. So we need to understand how many doses the person needs. Do they need a booster? Um, you know, what sort of psychological scaffolding is best, um, you know, to treat this comprehensively. I think it's a case of the, it's a miracle drug, give them one treatment and they're cured for life. I think we need to be realistic about that. But um, it is incredibly encouraging because as we know with antidepressants, uh, you do not get that, you know, acute um, you know, antidepressant effect. And that's very important, especially when people are suicidal. So you're talking about acute effects, what, within hours or, you know, or that they're experiencing mood improvements? Yeah, I mean, uh, sure, but then you've got to understand a person's undergoing quite a strong psychological experience. So it, it knocks them around for that particular day and then, yeah, hopefully good night's sleep and then they're, they're, they're on the mend and, 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 and have got a sustained mood improvement over the space of days and weeks after. And you mentioned that they're kind of working on the, um, you know, serotonergic function. Are they, you know, is it dopamine, glutamate? Is that where, it, or where it's potentially working from those monoamines? Yeah, primarily the serotonergic pathway. Uh, as I was saying, the 5-HT2A receptor uh, agonism uh, is where we get this effects. But th there's also, um, quite interestingly, 
uh, growth promotant, uh, I should say, um, uh, neurogenesis promotant effects, uh, as well as dampening what's known as the default mode network. And so in cases uh, such as depression, you have an overly active default mode network, so the circuitry in the brain, which in a sense, if you, if you could imagine a car, it's idling away, you know, and it's ruminating, you know, and we just want to dampen that, that background noise. That is what psychedelics have quite compellingly shown. Um, but there's also other effects such as having quite strong anti-inflammatory effects. So, you know, the mystery is being unraveled, um, and it's quite interesting to show a range of these pathways, um, you know, which are affected by psychedelics. So we've got some of the obviously similar mechanisms to some of the traditional antidepressants, but obviously there's this uh, immediate effect that you know, that traditional antidepressants don't have. Obviously, you know, you've got to use it more chronically with regards to antidepressants, but obviously antidepressants target the serotonergic function and and there's obviously some research around its ability to increase kind of, you know, neurotrophic factors and things like that. But this also kind of impacts on those mechanisms too. Yeah, absolutely. Now, also, there's also psychotherapeutic mechanisms like, you know, I've read, you know, gaining insights into the inner self and um, altered sense of perception and increased feelings of connectedness. That's also happening too, isn't it? Oh, look, exactly. And, and, and that's the problem is that sometimes we can get sidetracked looking at the biological mechanisms and we forget about the actual human experience. And it's exactly what you said. It's, it really is ultimately, apart from those neuroplastic changes, the individual, the person gaining insights into themselves, but also their mental illness. Uh, if used in that, in that way, there's also experiences such as ego dissolution. So a person having a sense of, you know, because can I put this? If, if, for example, with depression, people are very much myopically focused on themselves. They're ruminating often. They're negatively thinking. You know, everything's turned inwards. But when that's, in a sense, dissolved, when that noise is just quietened and people feel more connected to the people around them, to nature, they feel a part of something greater than themselves, that has a profound therapeutic effect. And then you layer that on top of people having genuinely strong insights as to you know, where the problems are occurring in their life, how they got there, how to make changes in their life. It really can have a very profound therapeutic effect. Wow, it's amazing. So, so, so the potential for this, obviously, and that's you know, obviously why the interest from different uh, researchers like yourself in, in the potential of these uh, psychedelics to improve mental health and, uh, and also the substance abuse. So there's alcohol and, uh, you know, has a, a positive effect on alcohol abuse and things like that too. Is that what some of the research is indicating? It, it absolutely is. And, it, and look, it, it makes sense. And I mean, look, we have to, of course, consider the comorbidity, you know, which is very common. I mean, you have people with depression, often there might be increased uh, alcohol use uh, as a coping mechanism, for example, uh, you may also have a background of trauma as well. So, you know, everything's very much interrelated. I think the yeah. challenge we have with the general scientific model is let's just focus on one cookie-cutter condition. Um, I think really the strength of, of psychedelic research going forward will be to look at actually treating the person, improving their lives, 
creating a transformation, you know, addressing uh, across a myriad of, uh, of conditions, you know, the, I guess having a, a transdiagnostic approach. Uh, I think that's the yeah. real strength. Now, you touched on earlier a bit about safety. So what's the safety of these psychedelics? Well, it's, it's very important we do consider the safety. I think by and large, and, and of course, you know, these are small studies presently, but the safety data is, is pretty good regarding classical psychedelics. Uh, certainly, if you look at across broader broader populations, if you look at the data concerning, for example, uh, the, the negative societal effects, health effects of psilocybin versus alcohol or nicotine, um, you know, we can see obviously it's it's incredibly minor uh, in comparison. Uh, but nevertheless, we we of course have to be very uh, conscious of safety, and that's why, of course, we advocate if any use is is happening with that, that that it is within a psychotherapeutic framework um, with some medical supervision uh, just to make sure that uh, that the safety mechanisms are in place and so uh, what about with people who have comorbid medical conditions let's say for example cardiovascular disorder or um, or there's a history of psychotic disorders are they appropriate for those individuals and that's yeah. Look, that's that's exactly right. We need to be very careful about. I mean, we can only comment at the moment, of course, from a research perspective. But um, but who we're including in our studies, and that's why there is a fairly rigorous inclusion exclusion criteria. Um, one of which, which you have brought up, uh, is a predisposition. It could be familial or an actual diagnosis uh, of a psychotic disorder. Um, mm-hmm. That's important to exclude for. Uh, as well as a, a range of major medical conditions. Um, that being said, you know the question which we we always get is that uh, that that sounds great from a scientific perspective and certainly from an ethics committee perspective. But then, what are we saying? A lot of people with chronic mental health, of course, have got comorbid in many cases physical ailments. Um, what are we doing? The, we, we we can never they can never be treated. So, yeah. you know, but look, at the moment we need to collect the data as safely as we can. Um, and then, of course, as that advances, I would like to think that we're going to be looking at making this uh, potential therapy more generalizable to, you know, most of the population, uh, safety considerations notwithstanding. Or withstanding, I should say. <laughs> something so standing, anyway. Something standing, yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. All right. So so it sounds like then that the research, like any trial with any new drug or new treatment, it's it, the, the trials are recruiting people who, yeah, there's quite strict eligibility criteria. There's a lot of exclusion criteria. Um, but obviously you need to do your, your assessments on, on those individuals first and then potentially look at expanding it uh, in the future, uh, if you find some positive results and there's some positive safety profile too, I think so. Yes. Okay. So at the moment, though, can I be treated? Well, sadly, uh, what we've the present situation, what we've got is that the TGA are thankfully they're allowing for some uh, SASCAT B applications to be approved. So that's in in special cases. If their psychiatrist says, yes, you're a good candidate, for example, for psilocybin, uh, for depression, uh, they'll get an approval and TJ will say, yep, okay, that 
this is fine based on the evidence in your particular case in medical judgment. Then it goes through to the states for state-based approval and they don't want a bar of it. They won't touch it. So it's it's incredibly disappointing. And if you put yourself in the shoes of the patients, it's very upsetting uh, for that, especially when they've tried many, many other treatments and they're considered to be treatment resistant and their doctor uh, decides that's the best treatment, I think it should be respected. Um, But, you know, there's always uh, politics involved uh, in these situations, and all we can do is just hope that uh, sanity prevails uh, and that some people who really are needing to have another option can do so in a safe medical uh, manner. So in reality... At the moment, that's not. There's not really an option for people. It's. It sounds like it's very, very difficult for them to be able to be treated and yeah, get approved. That's, well, it's twenty twenty two from memory. Yeah. So yes, hopefully, who knows? If somebody listens to the yeah. podcast months down the track, years down the yeah. track as well, things might have changed, and I hope they would have. Um, and it's look. The other consideration is that people are. Uh, some people they're they're going overseas when they can. Uh, obviously uh, been difficult over the last couple of years to South mm. America to undergo ayahuasca ceremonies and, and you know, we're not going to judge it one way or the other. That's up to the individual. But there's also clandestine ayahuasca ceremonies taking place in Australia. A lot of reports we've had is that they're incredibly beneficial for people. And that's not to say, however, that in some cases people may not have an adverse a reaction that they may not need mm. medical support or psychological support. So, the problem is when you push things uh, underground, you know, you have all sorts of issues. So, to me, it makes sense if people are really wanting to do it, it would be advantageous from a health policy perspective, surely, in the making sure that they're being treated appropriately by a clinical psychologist and psychiatrist. And they also know what they're getting. You know, there's a, a standardized medicine. They actually, you know, know what they're taking. I mean, to me, that would be a sensible approach. Um, and I guess we'll just have to wait to see how policy changes. Yeah, unfortunately, the sensible approach is not often the most common approach. But, uh, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Now, um, okay, so let's say the research is positive. We're looking at some um, some beneficial effects. Um, where do you see this kind of fitting in? Like, who's going to be prescribing it? Uh, where would it be? Have you got any ideas around that? Well, we're casting our mind, of course, into the future. We need firmer data. I mean, we cannot say on a mass level uh, that these agents should be prescribed yet, um, but we're getting there. We need a bit more data and we certainly need a bit more understanding around the therapeutic model and the safety elements as well. Uh, but, But look, I think all things being equal, the data looks very, very promising if that gets replicated and we start getting, for example, uh, phase three study data coming through, then you know, realistically, there's not to say within a certain amount of time there can't be psychedelic-based clinics, uh, which is set up across the states. People go in there for treatment. They're, they're assessed, first of all, of course, rigorously for inclusion and if the criteria and if they're, they're fine to go, if it's appropriate for them as determined medically, uh, then, yes, they undergo psychological preparation sessions, the treatment. Maybe they need one, two, three, four treatments. It depends on the agent and the condition. Um, and they do it in a very comfortable setting, getting very good therapy, and hopefully, 
hopefully they will have a transformative effect and you'll get a flow-on effect through society uh, mm-hmm. that people are functioning better, they're living healthier lives, happier lives, uh, they're contributing and, you know, in a sense they're, I don't know how else to say it, but spreading the happiness slash societal productivity, which I know is, is probably more yeah. of a political <laughs> sentiment, but maybe that's how it's viewed. I don't know. But, um, yeah, hopefully that, that, that's that's how the, the future does evolve and we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, obviously. And obviously your, your work and uh, the work of your colleagues is going to guide us in terms of firstly uh, efficacy and then safety and then and then obviously looking at how to administer it most appropriately. You know, is it one dose? Is it two doses? Uh, how many, you know, obviously it's, you know, with what, what type of supports and all those things. So that sounds like there's still lots of questions to be answered before we proceed further uh, with regards to psychedelics. Absolutely. Look, on a mass level, I think that is absolutely the case. Um, I still I still think, look, there are some clinicians who have undergone uh, training in regards to administering psychedelics and they have the psychological training around that as well. And I think they should be afforded the opportunity uh, via the SASCAT-B uh, scheme to, uh, or regulations to prescribe these agents. Um, but yeah, certainly when it comes to a larger rollout, we, we need to see how the data evolves. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you, Jerome, for being with us today to discuss the use of psychedelics in mental health. Um, you've certainly given us a better understanding of what these comp- compounds can do and cleared up some of the myths and, and I suppose stigma surrounding them. Um, we know that right now we're experiencing a mental health epidemic and, and there are a lot of pra- practitioners out there who are looking at other options and obviously this potentially could fulfill one of those those gaps but uh, obviously we'll see how that progresses over time um, so thank you again Jerome for taking us through all of this you're very welcome great to be with you thank you everyone for listening today don't forget that you can find all the show notes transcripts and other resources from today's episode on the FX medicine website I'm Dr Adrian Lopristi and thank you for joining us we'll see you next time podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to FX Medicine, and share us with your family, friends, and colleagues.